Hello to everyone joining us. It's a pleasure to have you all here. Welcome to this webinar on the topic intersections. Today we'll be discussing the key changes to three guides that also is recently updated. Guide to Traffic Management Part 6, Intersections, Interchanges and Crossings. Guide to Road Design Part 4, Intersections and Crossings General. And Part 4A, Unsignalised and Signalised Intersections. My name is Liz and I'm the moderator in today's session. If you need any technical support, please contact me through your chat box in your webinar toolbar. So just a bit about Austroids. Austroids supports its member organisations, those listed here, to deliver an improved road transport network. Austroids members are collectively responsible for managing 900,000 kilometres of roads valued at more than $200 billion. Our collective approach delivers value for money, encourages shared knowledge and drives consistency for road users. We are proud to bring this webinar to you today. As we'll be covering a lot of content today, the presentations will run longer than usual. Presentations will run for approximately 55 minutes and then we have 15 minutes at the end for a live Q&A. We are also recording today's session and we'll be sharing the footage on the conclusion of the webinar. The presentation slides to this webinar is also available to download in the handout section. You do have the ability to ask our presenters any questions. Simply type your questions into the questions box that you can see into the sidebar at any stage throughout the webinar. To help us answer your question, please let us know the slide your question relates to. We'll then answer them during a live Q&A at the end. We do have a large audience joining us today and we'll try our best to answer as many questions as we can. So as mentioned, this session will give you an overview of the key changes made to the guides shown on this slide. You can download the guides from the Austroads Publications website through the link shown. Staff from Austroads member organisations can download PDF versions of the guides for free. This includes staff from all state and territory road agencies and local councils in Australia and New Zealand. Simply email austroads at austroads.com.au from your work email to request your login details. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce our two presenters. They are both from the Australian Road Research Board in Melbourne. First up, we have Peter Orman, who is the Principal Research Engineer working within the Safe Systems Division. He has been extensively involved in the development of the Austroads design guidance for intersections, both from a design perspective and a traffic management perspective. Hi, Peter. How are you today? Hello, Eliz, and hello to our audience. It's great to see so many of you here. We also have Lisa Steinmetz, who is a senior research engineer with over 15 years in the industry. She is part of the Safe Systems team, where she manages and contributes to road safety research and provision of expert advice in the areas of road engineering safety, traffic management, and road design. Hi, Lisa. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Hello, Elise, and hello to everybody who's joining us. I hope you all find today's webinar interesting and useful. So in terms of the structure of this webinar, we'll be going through each of the guides separately. Peter will do a quick introduction. Lisa will then present the Guide to Traffic Management Part 6. We'll then cross back to Peter, who will present on the Guide to Road Design Part 4 and 4A. So just to note, Lisa's presentation will be longer than Peter's section in terms of timings, and then we'll finish up with the Q&A at the end. 
I'll now hand it over to Peter. Thank you, Elise. The development of all these guides is undertaken by Austroad through a team of jurisdictional and agency staff, and we'll elaborate more on those as we get to the individual parts. The other thing that's important to appreciate is the relationship of the traffic management guides and the road design guides. The traffic management guides outline for the selection and decision on treatments. So you go to the traffic management series when you're wanting to determine what type of treatment should I place at my intersection. Having determined that, to get the geometrics required, geometric design required for that intersection, the guide to road design outlines the parameters and criteria for the development of the geometry of the intersection. Now most of us need to appreciate there's maybe some toing and froing between the two guides before a final intersection is selected to take account of all the criteria, the parameters, the constraints that we might be found at any one particular location. So it's important to understand in recap, Guide to Traffic Management outlines the types of intersections and a process for their selection and the Guide to Road Design, we've just decided the type of intersection. Now what are my geometry? characteristics that are needed to prepare the design and construction layouts. On that note, we'll now get into the Guide to Traffic Management Part 6 and I'll hand over to Lisa. Thanks Peter. So um, as we discussed um, as Elise and Peter mentioned, I'm going to discuss the changes and the updates to the current addition to the Guide to Road Design Part 6, Intersections, Interchanges and Crossings. This, uh, this was undertaken by a re review team um, and Dave Landmark uh, from Main Roads Western Australia was the project manager for this project. Um, the working group included representatives um, from all the way around Australia and New Zealand, so I think we had really good representation um, for this project. So as uh, Peter mentioned, the scope of Part 6 relates to traffic management for all types of road intersections, including grade-separated interchanges, as well as road rail crossings, pedestrian and cyclist crossings of road and bicycle facilities. And it provides guidance on traffic management aspects, including the selection of intersection type, taking into consideration um, the needs for various road user types. The guide has eight sections, as well as some appendices and commentaries. There have been updates made throughout the guide, and I'm going to cover um, some key principles undertaking these changes, and then take you through the main changes in each section. The key updates throughout the guide include embedding the safe system principles um, and this really uh, takes into account the safe system approach which looks at provision of the safest practical treatment that also provides an acceptable level of mobility, i.e. we're looking to maximise safe mobility. Section 1.3 of the guide, um, safety objections 
objectives have been expanded to include the safe system diagram and acknowledges that safe roads and roadsides and safe speeds are the pillars, the safe system pillars that are most relevant for road agencies in providing safe intersections. Updates throughout the guide to prompt consideration of network operational objectives include um, guidance to facilitate accommodation of needs for all road users across all transport modes and adjacent land users. When doing this, a network operation plan is a tool that can assist with providing the balance for competing demands of road users. Other updates throughout the guide include incorporating outcomes from relevant recent research, emerging guidance and best practices, updating linkages to other guides. Um, an interesting one is we've updated the language referring to disabilities throughout the guide to be more inclusive, to uh, refer to people who have disability and or mobility difficulty. Uh, some of the sections or content within the sections have been reorganised to help the flow uh, and a number of shorter and or key commentaries have been incorporated into the body of text and then some new commentaries have been added as well as a new appendix. So let's go to each of the sections individually. Section 2 describes the types of intersections available, factors that might influence the selection of an appropriate type of intersection and considerations for specific road user groups. Interse intersection selection involves consideration of safety, operational performance or other factors in order to maximise safe mobility. A number of updates have been made throughout this section and we'll discuss the key ones here. But before we look at those, I just want to mention that section 2.3.4 includes a series of tables that summarise key traffic management considerations for roundabouts, signalised and unsignalised intersections as well as interchange. Now relevant updates to those tables have been made to reflect uh, changes in chapters throughout uh, on those specific topics throughout the rest of the guide. So I'm just going to cover those changes as we come to those specific topics. Uh, when we look at types of intersections, um, one of the sections covers channelised turn treatments and figures illustrating a number of different rural and urban channelised turn treatments are provided. Figure 2.7 shows typical rural channelised treatments at T intersections and a figure illustrating a channelised left turn on the major road has been revised to show separation between the through lane and the turning lane to enable drivers on the minor road to have a clear view of the traffic on the through road approaching from their right. Now the width of the separation needs to be assessed to ensure adequate sight lines are available past the left turning traffic. And then in an urban context, a bicycle lane might be used to provide the bicycle facilities as well as providing this separation to improve the intersectional visibility. A new intersection type has been added, left in left out treatments or LILOs, and this is a form of channelised left turn treatment that also incorporates right turn bands. These treatments generally improve safety by reducing the number of conflict points and they can help efficient network operation by helping improve traffic flow through the intersection. LILO treatments may be used um, through the introduction of channelisation or through median closures and they can be implemented in urban or rural environments and might also include protected acceleration or deceleration lanes where required. In relation to staggered T intersections, additional content has been added to note that a left-right configuration is generally preferred due to the lower associated crash risk. 
although the direction of the selected stagger is context dependent and might also be influenced by existing site conditions such as traffic volumes and road alignment. For example, converting a skewed cross intersection to a staggered T, you might be limited by the site constraints. Commentary 5, which includes some findings from research on staggered T's, has been expanded to include some more recent research findings. So this commentary already had some research um, undertaken by Owen Arndt, but these findings have been supplemented by some more research, recent findings um, by Chia, Jurovich and Turner. And all, uh, both lots of these uh, research support the left-right preference in terms of safety. When we come to the uh, intersection selection process, which is discussed in section 2.3, uh, this section has been expanded to include safe system as well as network performance objectives. Now the overall aim is to provide a safe and cost effective intersection treatment that meets the operational needs within any constraints that might exist. So in any given situation, the selection of an appropriate intersection treatment might be complex because it involves consideration and therefore the need to balance safety, operational performance and other factors. But the overall aim is to provide the safest practical treatment that also provides a safe and acceptable level of mobility. And this needs to take into account the relative safety and needs of all road users, particularly pedestrians and cyclists where they're going to be present. Now this section includes a flowchart that outlines the intersection selection process. There has been a small but key update to this figure. The first step now prompts consideration of safe system as well as network performance objectives. When we were reviewing this section, there was some discussion about whether these two separate these were two separate steps, and the working group agreed that consideration of these objectives can and probably should be done at the same time. The safe system and network performance objectives set the scene for the way in which the intersection should be designed and managed. As I mentioned, the aim is to provide the safest practical treatment that also provides an acceptable level of mobility. The key objective of the safe system approach is to ensure that in the event of a crash, the impact forces do not exceed human tolerance, i.e. we're looking to minimise the risk of fatal and serious injury. Further to the safe system objectives, the impact of all potential crashes should be taken into consideration. So when upgrading or changing an intersection, practitioners should be mindful not to introduce new crash types or increase the, uh, the frequency of existing crash types where possible, and particularly not at the expense of fatal and serious injury crashes. In terms of crash likelihood and severity, we know that intersection safety performance is predominantly influenced by approach speed impact angle and opportunity for conflict. The influence that impact angles and travel speed have on transferable kinetic energy and therefore the impact forces experienced by people during a collision is illustrated in a new figure, which is figure 2.24. These forces ultimately influence the level of injury sustained by those involved in a crash. Higher speeds and a collision angle of around 90 degrees tends to result in the most severe injury outcomes. The opportunity for conflict relates to the number of conflict points within an intersection, while a higher potential number of conflict points is generally reflects a lower safety performance. It should be noted that different types of conflict points are associated with different crash potential and severity, and approaches for minimising the potential for conflict within an intersection are discussed in section 2.5.1.
The Safe System Assessment Framework is introduced. This is an approach that can be used to help assess and guide safety considerations for intersection selection. The steps are summarised in Table 2.2 and um, Appendix B is a new appendix that's been added which provides additional details on each of these steps as well as an example assessment. Essentially the steps of the Safe System Assessment Framework are to assess the objectives, consider the context of the project, what is the reason of the project, the function of the road, road users present, etc. Uh, then we apply the Safe System Matrix to assess different major crash types against exposure to crash risk, likelihood and severity outcome. And then finally, the fourth step is to consider the treatment hierarchy to help select treatments that can help address crash risks identified. And in the first order, first instance, look to identify treatments that eliminate the risk of fatal serious injury crashes. And then in the second instance, consider treatments that can improve safety, although they might not eliminate those crash types. In terms of network operation, Objectives might involve providing priority for certain road user groups or balancing priorities for multiple groups. For example, we might look at providing a high level of performance for private vehicles or drivers. We might look at providing priority for on-road public transport over private travel. There might be a need to accommodate cyclist facilities or there might be a need to accommodate particularly for pedestrians. A network operation plan can provide guidance on setting objectives for the intersections and crossings and readers are referred to the Guide to Transport Planning and the Guide to Traffic Management Part 4 Network Management for further detail on, these, on this approach. So now we come to section 2.3.3 which um, looks at the assessment of intersection control options. Traffic control selection should optimise safety and operational performance. We're looking to minimise the conflict points or angles where site and economic considerations allow. A number of recent studies suggest that roundabouts more consistently perform closer to safe system than conventional signalised and unsignalised intersections. There's emerging evidence that signalised roundabouts can also provide strong safety system performance. Signalised intersections tend to perform better than unsignalised intersections, but worse than roundabouts. And it follows that unsignalised intersections tend to experience the highest severe crash risk. The suitability of types of traffic control to different intersection layout is presented in Table 2.4, which is a new table based on some work coming from Queensland. For example, all forms of traffic control tend to work well for T intersection layouts, i.e. they work well for roundabout signals, signs or road rules only, while for wire junctions, roundabout and signals tend to work well, while there can be issues related to observational angle and um, for signed and unsigned wire intersections. So that's just something to keep in mind as we're selecting our intersection type. Moving on to warrants for basic auxiliary and channelised turn treatments. This section has been updated to reflect the most recent work on this topic by TMR in Queensland. The curve for uh, designs greater than 100 kilometres per hour has been retained and this is typically reflective of high-speed rural roads. A new curve has been added for where the design speed is between 70 and 100 kilometres per hour. Um, that curve 
that graph can be seen on, the, seen on this slide here. And this is reflective of where high-speed urban, um, of high-speed urban roads, including those on the urban fringe and lower-speed rural roads. And then finally, there's a new also a new curve for a situation uh, where the design speed is less than 70 kilometres an hour, and this generally reflects urban roads. Now, just note, we've identified a minor typo in the guide here. The third graph, less than 70 kilometres per hour, is currently labelled less than 100 kilometres an hour. Um, just be mindful of that, but the text uh, discussing each of these curves is correct. When calculating the minor road traffic volume, which is the x-axis on the curve, this can now be calculated for three different road types, being two-lane two-way, four-lane two-way, or six-lane two-way roads. The guide now also notes that channelised turn treatments are preferred to non-channelised treatments, as these help ensure clear lines of sight for vehicles through the intersection, and they also help manage vehicle paths and conflict points at those intersections. Section 2.4 discusses common issues faced by pedestrians, cyclists, motorcyclists, trucks and public transport users and some possible treatments are summarised in this section. Some of this content was previously in the unsignalised section of the previous edition of the guide and however much of it was relevant to all sections so we've brought it forward to section 2. Key considerations for pedestrians and cyclists um, we really need to consider different types of these road users in terms of age and ability, uh, level of service that's required for them and therefore the type of facility. So for instance where there might be a high proportion of school children or elderly pedestrians or pedestrians that might have a vision, mobility or hearing impairment. Primary safe system treatment options for pedestrians and cyclists include separation of facilities or the provision of very low motorised vehicle speed environment particularly at intersections or crossing points, while supporting treatments include reducing the speed environment and provision of at-grade facilities. This section also includes a series of tables that notes common issues faced by each of these road users and it provides potential treatments. For example, accessibility for vision, mobility or hearing impaired pedestrians, um, inadequate storage, and for cyclists, issues such as squeeze points or issues relating to turning right for cyclists. For both pedestrians and cyclists, the issues regarding, vehicle, uh, regarding drivers in vehicles um, potentially not noticing them has been added. This relates to the fact that drivers are often focused on looking for other vehicles at the intersection and they may not notice pedestrians or cyclists as they're um, looking and negotiating through the intersection. Treatments for uh, issues such as this might involve reducing vehicle speeds on the approach or through the intersection, relocating pedestrian or cyclist crossing points, um, or installing infrastructure to improve the conspicuity of the crossing point. Considerations for motorcyclists have been supplemented with findings from some recent Austroads work, um, primarily relating to a report called Infrastructure Improvements to Reduce Motorcycle Casualties. Motorcyclists have unique needs and they're susceptible to crashes in intersections due to issues such as obstructed visibility and low conspicuity of the motorcycle as well as um, motorcycles not always being able to interpret the intersection. Treatment options for motorcyclists include provision of motorcycle facilities, 
hazard-free clear zones or motorcycle-friendly barrier systems, consistent design and clear sight lines. Moving on to section 2.5, which relates to intersection performance. Again, much of this content is from um, what was in the unsignalised intersection section in the previous edition of the guide. Um, but again, the principles are common to all. Many of the principles are common to all intersections. This content has been reviewed and updated and includes incorporating content that had been in commentaries into the body. There have been a few updates in particular to um, section 2.5.1 on safety performance. And um, safety considering safety performance, um, the, the principles are, are listed on this. You can see them listed on the slide. So the first principle relates to ensuring adequate visibility at the intersection. And uh, there is reference to a new commentary, commentary 20, which describes an emerging treatment that uh, suggests reducing excessive sight distance on an intersection approach. Um, can be used to encourage slower approach speed. So in most cases we're looking to uh, maximise sight distance but in some cases the um, sight distance might be excessive um, which might uh, lead to vehicles uh, progressing through the intersection um, too fast for what we might like and so in those cases constraining sight distance might be considered. Uh, the next principle is minimising potential for conflict and um, in relation to this uh, principle, uh, we've updated figure 2.29 which can be seen on the slide and this illustrates a T-intersection realignment in order to better define the vehicle path through the intersection as well as reducing the area of conflict. Uh, the next, um, the next uh, principle relates to managing priority movements. So um, where, where a particular movement is a priority through an intersection, um, treatments might uh, in reflect managing those such that the, the through to movement or the, the major movement um, has a priority. In terms of managing speeds, comment has been added to prompt consideration on the skew angle and direction. Now, it should be noted that a 70 degree skew angle can present difficulties, particularly for truck drivers, and that the direction of the skew makes a difference in terms of safe operation of the intersection, particularly in relation to the ability of drivers to clearly see the intersection and the traffic on the intersection intersecting road. Some safe system critical impact speeds for common crash types have also suggested, have also been suggested, and um, these really support the understanding that critical speeds are considerably lower for crashes involving vulnerable road users or where there's um, cross-angle crashes while critical impact speeds for rear-end collisions tend to be higher. Readers are referred to a new commentary, Commentary 1, which discusses the relationship between vehicle speeds and the likelihood of a serious injury, which is based on some recent Austroads research that explores this topic. Finally, the final principle relates to um, a clear and easy understanding um, of the design and layout. And the subsect a subsection has been added to discuss and encourage the need for this principle. This is because a complicated or confusing intersection layout can have a poor safety performance. The layout and priorities should be clear for all road users. At the end of this section, a reference has been added to an emerging treatment, the Rural Intersection Active Warning System. 
and this uses speed and traffic management to help improve conspicuity of rural intersections. So further details on this treatment is included in Commentary 21 and it uses electronic signage to reduce speeds on the major road when vehicles are approaching on the minor road. So that's the end of the um, key changes throughout section two and now we're going to progress um, onto each of the other chapters. One thing I just want to mention is that the order of the next few chapters has been reorganised to reflect the safe system intersection hierarchy of control which is roundabout, then signalised and then unsignalised intersections. The content within the chapter on roundabouts has been updated to, uh, to reflect and take into account safe system considerations. From the safe system perspective, roundabouts act predominantly by reducing the severity of impacts because the entry, the entry and circulating speeds of traffic are moderated through horizontal deflections. The impact angles are lower than at other intersection forms. There is a reduction in the number of conflict points and entering drivers are often more alert to the need to give way to vehicles within the roundabout and this might also contribute to lower speeds and increased driver alertness. In terms of expected crash reductions, when replacing priority intersections, roundabout can achieve FSI crash reductions in the range of 34 to 87%, depending on the type of intersection that's been replaced and the type of roundabout that's being implemented. Guidance on roundabouts has been expanded to note that roundabouts are usually very safe for vehicles. However, there's concerns for pedestrians, motorcyclists and cyclists. For cyclists, there are particular concerns associated with multi-lane roundabouts due to possible lane changes, complexity of negotiation, cyclist visibility for drivers and the relative high speed of entering vehicles. In light of this, the figures illustrating a bicycle lane within a multi-lane roundabout that had been in the previous edition has been removed from this edition. For pedestrians, roundabouts tend to be associated with fewer pedestrian crashes compared to priority controlled intersections. However, when a pedestrian crash does occur, they are more frequently high severity. With the above in mind, low design speeds are recommended where pedestrians and cyclists are expected. Commentary 17, which relates to the European Compact Radial Roundabout Design, has been updated to recommend separated bicycle paths for multi-lane applications and to also ensure low entry speeds are achieved to, to avoid potential increases in crashes. Content has also been added that discusses issues for motorcyclists at roundabout. This is in line with the general content that had been added in section two. Elements that might affect crash likelihood for motorcyclists at roundabout include adverse crossfall on the curves and or inadequate surface texture, um, issues relating to entry and exit design speeds, site distance, the roundabout layout and curve radius, uh, curb profiles, uh, multiple curve is preferable, and also horizontal geometry. Section 3.5.4 discusses entry curvature and deflection at roundabouts and notes 
that deflection is a very important factor when, uh, for influencing their safe operation. This section has been updated to note that roundabouts should be designed that the speed of all vehicles is restricted to less than 50 kilometres an hour within the roundabout where there's no cyclists or pedestrians. or Where we do expect cyclists and pedestrians to be interacting with the roundabout, these speeds should be restricted to less than 30 kilometres an hour within the roundabout. A number of potential speed reduction treatments for approaches have been added and this includes measures such as lane narrowing, perceptual countermeasures, horizontal and vertical deflections on approaches. This information is supplemented with notes on estimated effectiveness which have been drawn from some recent Austroge research published over the last few years. When we come to signalised intersection, uh, signalised roundabouts, as I mentioned previously, research has found that for signalised intersections, signalised roundabouts are best aligned with achieving safe system objectives. Section 3.6.1 has been updated to reflect this and commentary, 20, uh, sorry, commentary 19 has been expanded to provide further information on this and this provide um, links to the supporting research. So roundabouts have less conflict points and a comparatively sized traditional signalised intersection and uh, signalised roundabouts have an additional advantage over typical roundabouts in that the priority decision is simplified from gap acceptance to obeying the red signal. This should further reduce the likelihood of a crash occurring, especially at larger multi-lane roundabout sites. The severe crash probability for pedestrians and other vulnerable road users should also be greatly reduced, although not minimised. The likelihood of pedestrian and cyclist crashes could further be reduced by the use of signalised crossings, staged or offset crossings or bypasses. Moving on to signalised intersections. So traffic signals are provided to either rectify a safety or operational problem at an existing intersection or ensure an appropriate level of safety and mobility at new intersections. A new table has been added um, at the start of this section which uh, considers level of safety level of service metrics for the contribution of signal management to road users in terms of mobility, safety and access. In addition, a number of tables throughout this section have been updated. Table 4.2 presents geometric factors that might affect the capacity or safety of a signalised intersection. This has been updated to include the speed of approaching vehicles, which acknowledges that drivers sometimes have difficulty at estimating the speed of approaching vehicles and suggests techniques such as warning or perceptual countermeasures where these might be warranted. Tables 4.3, 4.4 and 4.5 have all been expanded to prompt considerations for motorcyclists. Now, in table 4.3 and 4.4, there are sim uh, the issues for motorcyclists are similar um, as those identified at local signalised approaches. So um, measures such as enhanced sight lines as well as those to improve motorcyclist conspicuity can help. Table 4.5 has been expanded to prompt considerations um, for things such as lane filtering for motorcyclists. 
noting that this reduces the likelihood of rear-end crashes. However, they could lead to increases in sideswipe or out-of-control crashes. Table 4.3 and 4.4 have also been updated to include some content relating to improving cyclist safety through measures such as green surface treatments for bicycle lanes on the approach and departure to signalised intersections and also in ensuring adequate space for the cyclists through treatments such as wide curbside lanes um, or provision of a dedicated bicycle lane. Finally, the previous edition in, had included subsections on each of the traffic signal elements, phasing, timing, coordination and traffic detection. However, in order to avoid duplication, a summary of these elements have been provided in a new table, which is table 4.6, and then the readers are directed to Guide to Traffic Management Part 9 uh, which, for more information as Part 9 uh, covers this in more detail, and Part 9 for those of you who are interested is called Traffic Operations. Moving on to unsignalised intersections, most intersections are unsignalised and account for a high proportion of the network delay, conflict between motor vehicles and also other road users. Unsignalised intersections are suitable for situations where there are no or not likely to be operational problems such as excessive delay or queues, safety problems that would justify the provision of a round of traffic signal. I hope everybody uh, didn't hear that very loud beeping, but uh, let's move on. When assessing site restrictions for the use of stop signs, um, there's been an update to um, the guidance on this in that the driver's eye height has been changed to 1.1 metres and this update is to um, so that it's in alignment with Guide to Road Design Part 3. There's also been some additional content um, relating to New Zealand requirements um, to prompt New Zealand readers um, to take into account New Zealand requirements as per Motsam Part 1. Uh, chapter 6 looks at road interchanges and road interchanges is a combination of grade separations in interconnecting roadways at the junction of two or more roads, at least one of which is a freeway, motorway or expressway or a major arterial road. The content in this chapter has been updated to reflect um, a recent Austroads publication, The Guide to Smart Motorways. In relation to spacing of interchanges, factors that influence interchange design and spacing have been updated. Um, a discussion on turbulence in relation to ramp spacing on urban freeways has been clarified and the desirable minimum spacing has been updated to reflect um, the Guide to Smart Motorways as well as the Guide to Road Design Part 4C. Figures have been added to illustrate a number of ramp scenarios in restricted situations, for example, um, where there's constraints due to the surrounding road network or topography. The section on ramp metering has been updated to include additional content um, to acknowledge that uh, metering is most effective as part of a coordinated system. Readers are also referred to the Guide to Smart Motorways for guidance on ramp control metering. Now within this section, a table uh, on the advantages and disadvantages of ramp metering has been expanded to acknowledge that there's additional advantages to metering such as 
improved flow stability um, because there's less braking and stop-start flow, there's less lane changing, there's improvements in relation to merging um, in the areas of high weaving and there's also improvements um, associated with reduced fuel consumption and emissions as a result to more efficient travel conditions. Chapter 7 relates to rail crossings. And this section has been rearranged to include grade separation crossings prior to at-grade crossings. There's been a new section added, section 7.3.3, which looks at safety at rural rail crossings. This incorporates text that had previously been in a commentary. And this has also been expanded to note that particularly on high-speed rural roads, Level crossings on inactive lines or those with infrequent services may lead to driver complacency or an increased risk of crashes. So content has been added to prompt consideration of site distance issues, driver's view of a rail crossing, and the fact that um, the driver's view of a rail crossing may also be hampered by overgrown vegetation or by nearby structures. Looking at the section on level rail crossing treatments, a summary of treatment options has been expanded to include rumble strips, speed limit signs, yellow blocks markings in additional to queue relocations, and also provision of additional storage or an escape lane. Finally, the section on selection of treatment, which relates to LCAM, um, has been amended to provide an overview of LCAM, which is the Australian Level Crossing Assessment Model only. So it provides an overview only, and then it refers readers to documentation on the LCAM website for further detail. And again, this is in order to avoid duplication and to avoid the situation where Part 6 might become outdated when the LCAM content is next revised. Uh, finally, Chapter 8 relates to pedestrian and cyclist crossings. Now, at a number of relevant locations, readers are prompted to consider um, and refer to the Australia's Pedestrian Crossing Facility Tool. Section 8.2.2 has been updated, um, has been provides guidance related to bicycle path crossings, and this has been updated in accordance to the Guide to Road Design Part A. And in particular, there has been an update relating to the preference to connect um, without the use of restricted devices, the philosophy being that um, a, con a connection, a terminal may in itself become a safety hazard in itself. So where these can be avoided, um, or where a terminal can be introduced without providing a safety hazard, that's the preference. Section 8.2.3 um, includes some uh, content relating to pedestrian count countdown timers, and this has been updated to incorporate findings of more recent research. Now, the findings um, have, found, have been mixed in relation to pedestrian safety and compliance. However, um, the research has found that pedestrians tend to like them. Finally, uh, when we're looking uh, at bicycle treatments at intersections, there's a new treatment. Uh, there's a new section that has been added, um, and this includes content on types of treatments at unsignalised and signalised intersections. Now, particularly in urban areas, delineation or provision of a green surface treatment can help improve awareness of cyclists, 
provide space and improve their comfort, as well as improving continuity and connectivity for the cyclists. Throughout the guide, readers are directed to Commentary 6, which details unconventional and innovative intersection designs. This commentary has been expanded to include uh, a number of new emerging and innovative design, um, primarily based on a recent Ostrich project. Some of these have been used successfully inter internationally, but they haven't always been um, trialled in Australia or New Zealand yet, and so that's why they appear in Commentary 6. So that's the end of the updates on Guide to Traffic Management Part 6. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning, the focus of the updates for this edition were to embed the safe system principles, prompt consideration of network operation objectives for all road users, as well as incorporating um, outcomes from some recent research. Now, I think we're going to see whether Elise has any questions before we move on to the Guide to Road Design. Yep. Thanks, Lisa. We do have a couple of questions that have gone through. Um, we'll go through some now. First question is, on sheet 27, there is a shaded section on the graph marked A, top left corner. What is this section and what does it mean? Um, that relates to the warrants um, for the people who are listening in. I'm I'm not sure because uh, that has that is not a change that um, that's not an addition for like that that shaded section is not an addition for um, the, the revisions so we'll have to have a quick look at that and get back to you on that. Excellent. Uh, I'll go through another question and then we'll go from to Peter. So the question was the warrant figures for BA, AU and CH treatments remain small and somewhat difficult to read due to scale. Are these available elsewhere? The original R 2016 document is easier to read and that now covers additional curves. Uh, Liz, just a bit of clarification on that question. Mm -hmm. is, the, is the question originating about the diagrams within the guide or yeah, the so the warrant figures. Um, apologies to everyone if you heard two large beeps again. We're not sure what's causing that. Um, the, only, the only other source would be to go to, there's a reference below the figure. Okay. To a Queensland Department of Transport and Main Roads. And if, if you go to that reference, you might be able to find, um, you'll certainly find this, the same warrant figures. Um, I'm not sure whether they'd be any clearer, but one can only have a look. Yeah, excellent. But um, yeah, I think I'll get back to you, Peter, and then we'll present and do your section. Uh, look, thank you. And again, look, our apologies for, we've now had a series of three loud beeps that we we hope everyone hasn't been experiencing, but if you have, please accept our apologies for that. So the guide to road design, remember I mentioned earlier about how the interaction with the guide to traffic management is, and, and the guide to road design focuses more on the geometry of an intersection, the geometric requirements. So in the development of both part four and four A, the project was headed up by Mike Whitehead from 
Department of Transport and Main Roads in Queensland and, and certainly being a participant in the project I'd like to acknowledge Mike's role in the production of the or undertaking of the review and the final product. So well done to Mike. Also involved was a working group comprising participants across Australia and New Zealand and they're represented on, on this slide so you can see we're getting a broad spectrum of road agencies and locations. And you should also note that the Australian Bicycle Council had a strong involvement in this review. And that all fed into the Road Design Task Force. You can see there are wider, wider groups. So again, the in effects or impacts upon all road agencies get taken into account when we produce these guides. So moving to part four, there hasn't been a huge amount of technical change within parts four and four A, but there has been an increase in emphasis on some areas and I'll go through them shortly. So part four, we have additional information on the geometric design of at-grade intersections, some design considerations and a process for the development of an intersection layout. And part 4A talks more about signalised and unsignalised intersection including site distances, turn treatments and auxiliary lanes. Now I mentioned earlier there was a bit of a change to part 4 and that a large part of part 4A as shown on this slide was transferred to an appendix in part 4. The task force deemed, and a lot of this information that's shown on this slide is actually taken from a previous version of the Guide to Traffic Management Part 6. So it's retention into future guide, future guide Part 4. I'm sure will be the subject of discussion at the next review of this guide. So Part 4 you can see comprises 10 sections from introduction and we move all the way down to rail crossings and you can see a lot of the, the subject areas were reflective of what's contained within the guide to traffic management. So you can see the similarity and so the, the linking between the guides. So what's been emphasised or changed in part four? The safe system. Now we understand in the guide to traffic management that's a very strong consideration but it was worth re-emphasizing some of the elements within the guide to road design series and another guide the guide to road design part one the introduction to road design contains more information and hence has been cross-referenced within the part four and there's recognition about of the emerging and innovative treatments but in bringing them into operation within each agency, there needs to be an assessment and translation so that the treatment can serve its purpose with the local conditions. So things like assessing the risk, the safety operation, and one important element is the costs. And we've mentioned whole of life costs. There's also capital costs and individual costs like maintenance costs. 
And another move that happened within part four was other considerations, which was not lost, but moved to section 3.7. We now move to the types of intersections. And here again, key referencing back to the Guide to Traffic Management, part six. So I know I'm harping on a little bit, but it's very important that these two guides are working hand in glove with each other as, as best as they can be. So some of the design principles, they're the same irrespective of the user. In urban areas, how have we considered parking, cyclists and pedestrians, which are more frequent than in rural areas? And there was another move of information to Appendix A nominated there. So what are the road design considerations? Again, the technical changes have been pretty, pretty light, but again, a re-emphasis. Are we considering all the road users, particularly pedestrians and cyclists? The, the layout of our intersection, we don't want to surprise drivers. And we don't want to severely dis disadvantage drivers if they make an error. A little amendment to the des design process, again, emphasising safe system type principles, identifying conflict points, establishing the movement priority, which is based on the function and classification. And I'd just like the emphasise the iterative process in design. It's come to me from various members of the design industry, particularly those managing designs, about the expectation that I'll get it right first time. And you may well get it right first time, but inevitably there'll be an iterative process in the development of your design. Because as you go through the detail, there'll be elements that have changed their impact and you might have to revisit the layout. So it's important that we understand that the design process usually ends up as an iterative type process. The design vehicle, this is just merely an update to the references and make sure everyone's alert to the, to the design templates now Austroads are produced, that you're using the appropriate design vehicles for your design and the details are contained within that design vehicles and turning templates guide. So just reinforcement of a cross-reference to a guide. Public transport at intersections, again re-emphasising the need to consider other road users than our normal or traditional passenger cars and heavy vehicles, cyclists, and we made mention there particularly of commuter cyclists because their behaviour, they typically travel a little bit faster and so we need to be cognisant of them, them being present on our roads and ensuring that our design caters for that particular group of road users. Property access and medians, there's just been a very minor change where some information had previously contained in an appendix 
and the functional area of an intersection. And what we mean by this functional area, which is on the on the figure, we talk about minimum functional length. That's an area where property access is not preferred because approaching vehicles, so vehicles approaching that intersection, the drivers might be determining do, the, do I want to turn left or right? And so we we don't want to increase their workload or decision making or awareness of other vehicles who might be entering the intersection from abutting properties. So we call that the functional area of the intersection. And that distance is determined by, by speeds and I've included just a part of table 7.1 out of part 4 just to, to show you what the table actually looks like rather than you using the table from this presentation. For median openings, there's additional guidance about providing a median openings, and these are high-speed rural divided roads in particular, about U-turn facilities. And these may come about because a property may, you may want to provide access to a property, but you, un, you are unable to provide it safely. And by that, it might be that the vehicle wanting to undertake the turn might project back into the through lanes, and that's something that in that location you aren't able to tolerate. So therefore you might provide access by using a U-turn facility further downstream along that road. And of course the U-turn requires a 180 degree turn compared to the 90 degree turn or thereabouts if you are able to provide property access through a meeting opening direct into the property. And then if you do provide U-turn facilities it suggested one you, you need to work within your agency policies but if you can't then provide it within a reasonable distance and a reasonable distance for this case has been set at about, about three kilometres then maybe you need to revisit the location of the where the property access is being sought and see well can I actually get that vehicle that design vehicle clear of the through lanes So as you can see, there hasn't been a huge amount of change to part, part four other than obtaining a lot of information that was contained in the previous edition of part 4A. I'll move on to part 4A and in the introduction, again re-emphasising the considerations for vulnerable road users. Layout recognition. Is it obvious to the drivers? And we've emphasised here motorcyclists because that, that has come up out of some research in, into that Lisa referred to earlier about caring for motorcyclists and the, their needs. And another one about travel paths and debris and the need to link to your maintenance program. So we, if we have a build-up of debris, one, it's clear of the areas the travel lanes but we also are removing it so it doesn't become a nuisance. And the design, whilst we mightn't specify in terms of pure design um, details on pavement markings, where are we providing the pavement markings and have we, have we indicated that these need to be skid resistant and particularly for motorcyclists and cyclists who have who, if they are located in the wrong position, may become hazardous to them. 
site distance. The figure I've shown here is a variation of the guide and I've done that quite deliberately. The guide talks about in the figure 5 metres where the set for set setback from the driver's eye to a conflict point with 5 metres being a minimum. This is not considered a change to the criteria. What the change is is to the point at which it's measured. Now why did this come about? Curb alignments in a lot of locations are no longer as shown on this figure but have outstands, have different alignments as they approach this intersection. So how do we work out the site distance when our figure, our guidance talks about or shows straight lines? So in developing the update to the guide, it was thought, why don't we put it to the conflict point? And that would be easier to work out for curb alignments that weren't nice and parallel to, to other alignments. So we could identify the conflict point and then work back from that point. And that was seen as a more useful measure rather than just purely measuring from building line or driver to curb line. But if you look at the figures, there is no real change from what's published for the five metres and three metres. And that was shown in, in Lisa's presentation. So don't be concerned, there really isn't a change. The next one I thought, a lot of you listening have probably said there's an error in the equation for pedestrian site distance and it relates to the time it takes or the critical safe gap in that equation where the and the I just want to let everyone know the equation has been corrected to that shown on the screen it was the most identified correction out of the 2009 edition so rest assured everyone it's been corrected. The next change is a, is a new table. I've, I've called it a new table. What it is an extension of the table that was previously table 5.4. And the extension is three columns to the right of the table which show four seconds travel time, a merge distance, and they're leading to a minimum desirable length which is based on the four seconds of travel time and merge length. The 2009 edition would have translated those minimum desirable lengths across to the shaded areas within the table. It was work determined that it would be better to actually show the calculated distances so that all the figures within the table itself are consistently worked out and then provide the minimum desirable length to the right of the table. Now what you need to be alert to is that the shaded areas, it's suggested that you adopt the minimum desirable length anyway. But the table now has been amended to show the calculated distances for all the, all the speeds of entry of each road. So one subtle change to the guide. 
So it, part 4A, you can see that, again, there hasn't been a significant amount of change. There's been a few corrections and a couple of clarifications. And so that has been the change. And again, I'd like to re-emphasize the linkage back to the guide to traffic management and in particular for this, this topic, the traffic management part six. So that now concludes our presentation and I'll hand back to Liz for any questions. Excellent, thank you, Peter. So we have received a lot of questions that have come through and thank you to those who have sent them through. We've received a lot of questions on the rural bar treatment in a guide to road design for A. Um, there is no longer a rural BAR treatment. Is this considered, is it considered that the urban BAR treatment be adopted? Um, Liz, I'd, I'd have to get the details on that. Um, mm, okay. I, I think what, what we've prepared, just to alert everyone, what we've prepared ourselves with today is the changes. I think to explain some of the changes, we need we probably need to take them offline and, and deal with them separately. Excellent. Um, so another another question we received is on slide 44, what does it mean by vertical deflections on the approaches? Okay, so that slide 44, um, I, oh, okay, so that related to uh, the commentary that are on unconventional and innovative intersection designs. Um, which that commentary had been expanded to include some emerging innovative designs and the slide included a couple of examples um, of intersections that have been added into that commentary. Now where uh, one of the uh, intersection types, um, an emerging design type that's been incorporated into this commentary um, relates to incorporating vertical deflections at or on the approaches to the intersection. So that includes treatments um, such as raised stop bars, speed platforms, raised intersections um, and the solution really has a range of different design parameters depending on the location and the road function um, and, and what, what's, um, what's trying to be achieved. Um, and, but yeah, so it, so it's just an example of yeah an emerging treatment, um, and there's a number of as I believe there's a number of um, evaluations of that type of treatment um, being undertaken at the moment. Excellent, thanks for that, Lisa. A question we received from Ricky is: Is there a reason why the rural right turn design layouts were moved from Part Four A to Part Four? Um, the best I can I can give you, Ricky, is the Task force, the road design task force, um, thought that the most appropriate way to deal with that type of information at this time. Okay, thanks for that, Peter. Another question we received from Robin: Was there any thought about including a section on light rail crossings? Um, that's a good point. It uh, it probably is something that needs to be considered probably now in the next review. Um, Light rail, as I understand, is now being going to be experienced in in more areas other than Adelaide and Melbourne. 
I think Sydney are, are busy building a light rail system mm. in the CBD. So the the um, the need for more information on that is probably now to a point where it would need to be considered for the next next review of both the guide to road design series and the traffic management series. Mm. Okay, thanks for that, Peter. Another question we received relates to assessment for warrants for turn treatments. Is this mandatory? If the guide says it is preferred, uh, it is conveniently avoided yep. by consultants on the basis that it is desirable but not mandatory? Yeah, that's a good question. Do you want me to repeat question. that question? Or? Yep. No, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. Yep, yep. Because it's, it's an issue that comes up, not just particularly relating to this question. The, these are guidelines. Now, what, as I understand, road agencies would indicate is you design in accordance with the guidelines, in which case um, the road agency has adopted a particular position of the guidelines. Now, it's a subtle difference between looking at the guidelines. They are guidelines, not mandatory, but they may become mm. mandatory if your road agency says so. Mm. So, so in response to, to that question, I would go back to the road agency and discuss with them how they see that fitting within the development of a design solution. Mm, that is a good good question there. Thanks for that, Peter. A question we received from Daniel. It relates to slide 28. Is there an agreed speed for cyclists or a way to calculate it for determining crossing times? Pedestrians using 1.2 metre per second, what do we use for cyclists? Well, that's a really tricky question because you've got a range of cyclists and different abilities um, that might need to be taken into consideration. So if you've got commuter cyclists, they might be travelling uh, at quite high speeds, um, whereas if you've got recreational or children cyclists, their speeds are going to be quite different. So I don't think there's a single answer for that. I think really um, practitioners need to take into account the type of cyclist that's likely to be encountered at that location and then catering for them appropriately. I think it, it is a good point, uh, Lisa, because mm. how would a signal designer take into account different users? It is very tricky. Because how do they know they're different users? So so when one's designing the traffic signals, it would be an interesting question to our traffic signal design um, personnel. Mm. Okay, thanks for clarifying that one. Uh, another question relates to slide 29, so actively reducing sight lines to reduce approaching speeds. So Daniel was under the impression that it wasn't allowed or recommended in Australia. Is it now allowed across all road safety treatments? And has this been, been considered by road safety engineers? Um, this, oh, I've got some notes specifically on this. Um, this is allowed under, um, oh, I've got to flick to my right, the correct section. Um, if we, like so, so the the treatment that I was mentioning um, related to an emerging treatment, and it really relates to um, excessive sight distance. Now, this is actually also mentioned in um, the uh, oh, there's an equation that mentions it. Um, it's in accordance. 
I might have to get back to you to the dinologist frantically trying to uh, flick to the correct location in the guide. Yeah. Um, Just while you're doing that, Lisa, I think I think um, Lisa mentioned it was an emerging treatment, mm. and the application into the design guides. Uh, it's certainly not within the road design series at the moment. What they suggesting is that you need to meet the minimum site distance requirements that we've probably used for a long time. Um, that uh, limitation or limiting site distance certainly is something that was undertaken in New Zealand where they found there was some benefit, but I think, I think there is still more uh, research needed on it to actually bring mm. it more strongly into the um, guides. Yes, and um, as I said, I'll have to get back to you specifically on that topic. Um, that was something that we did look at and um, it was in accordance with the relevant guide, um, although generally the emphasis is on maximising site distance, but there is a, a um, circumstance where we can look at um, managing excessive site distance and so this treatment was a reference to an approach where a road agency had looked to start doing that. Mm, excellent. Thanks for that Lisa. So one last question that we'll do is question on the, on the use of HFA on approaches to a signalised intersection. Has this been discussed or being incorporated to design code? Um, sorry Liz, uh, Liz um, could you just repeat that question? I'm not sure. The we... question, question on the use of HFA on approaches to a signalised intersection. HFA. Yeah, HFA. So high friction aggregate. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I I didn't quite <laughs> get to the aggregate bit. My apologies. Well, we're now delving into pavement design. And, and maintenance of pavements that um, whilst Lisa and I know a little bit about, I wouldn't say we're experts at high friction surfaces. Um, certainly it's mentioned as solutions to some particular issues, but what they need to be is maintained to provide that high friction when you want them to provide it. And, and coming from other trying to manage other surfaces where friction uh, was an issue. Maintenance and, and making sure your maintenance and, and that includes your reseal or resurfacing teams are all well aware of those requirements. So yes, it is, it is um, a possible treatment for particular issues. but it comes with some management challenges, as I see it. Excellent. Thanks for that, Peter. So unfortunately, we'll have to start wrapping up this session due to time. Uh, we do apologise to the audience if we weren't able to get to your question during the Q&A, but what we'll do is we'll prepare written responses to the questions and we'll email your copy once that's available. But you can also get in contact with us if you do have any further inquiries. Uh, before we close up, I'd like to let you know of the upcoming webinars we have. We have two sessions similar to this one discussing the changes made to Guide to Traffic Management Part 13 and Part 3. We also have a webinar on concepts of operations on 21st of November. So if this interests you, you could go to our website for more information and to register. 
as we close up, uh, we encourage you to answer a quick survey which will pop up on the screen after the webinar. You can give us your feedback and suggestions on topics that you would like us to cover in future webinars. Again, I'd like to thank our audience who have been engaging with us throughout the webinar. We hope you got some value out of this session. And thank you so much to Peter and Lisa for your time today presenting and answering the questions. You did a good job. But um, yeah, thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye, everyone, and enjoy the rest of your day.